Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Morning. Uh, our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. It is the account of the crucifixion of our Lord. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word of the Lord. We've been uh, looking at various aspects of Jesus' life identity, self-understanding, and work in this world. Uh, next week, we're going to look uh, to conclude this series by looking at the resurrection. But this week, we need to look at the most famous, or I should probably say the most infamous aspect of who Jesus is. He's crucified. Think about that. Of all the many different ways that Jesus could have been executed, why this particular way? Because of all the various forms of execution that have ever been devised by human beings, none is more painful, degrading, horrifying, brutal, ghastly, and gruesome than crucifixion. None 
has ever been more horrifying than the crucifixion. And we need to pay full attention to that because if we don't, we're not going to understand the full significance of Jesus' death on the cross. The challenge is it's really hard for us to comprehend just how horrifying crucifixion is. For instance, uh, Jenny and I watched The Green Mile again a couple of weeks ago. It's an old Tom Hanks movie about a prison guard on death row in the Deep South during the 1930s. Back then, the form of execution was the electric chair. They would strap an electrode to your head, and that's how the electricity got into your body. But there had to be a sponge soaked in water placed on the head first. And if that sponge wasn't soaked in water, because the water acts as a conductor for the electricity, and actually they make a really big deal about this in the movie, if that sponge isn't soaked in water, things could go horribly wrong. In that movie, there's an execution scene in which things go horribly, horribly wrong. And if you've seen the movie, you're already shuddering. Jenny and I have seen it before, and so when that scene came, Jenny closed her eyes, I turned down the volume, and she said, just tell me when it's over. Now listen, we're in a public place, and out of respect and sensitivity for you, I am not going to go into a graphic description of that scene. It's just too graphic. It's too horrifying. But that's the point. Can you imagine um, hanging a picture of that scene over your fireplace as an object of veneration or worship? If you can't, That's good, because it means we're actually starting to get a better understanding of just how horrifying the crucifixion really was. Jesus wasn't just killed, he was crucified. What does that mean? Um, You know, as finite human beings, we can't really comprehend God. Not fully. It's like there's a brick wall between us and God. But the cross is like a window in the wall showing us who God is by showing us who Jesus is. So over the past few weeks, we've seen that on the cross, Jesus was a ransom for sin. He was a Passover lamb taking our judgment. He's a a champion winning a victory for us. But the cross is not only a window showing us who God is, it's a mirror showing us who we are. The cross shows us about ourselves. Or we could say it like this. The cross helps us embrace the remedy God offers by showing us the malady it addresses. The cross helps us embrace the remedy God offers by showing us the malady it addresses. This morning, I want to invite you to meditate with me on four different things the cross shows us about ourselves. It shows us the wound, the mask, the wraith, and the beloved. Let's look briefly at each one of those things. First, the cross shows us the wound. One of the most obvious things about crucifixion is the wounds it afflicted, inflicted on Jesus. So before he even got to the cross, he was brutally beaten by Roman guards. On top of that, he was whipped with lashes that had pieces of bone and metal embedded in them. They would literally tear chunks of flesh out of someone. And when he did get to the cross, uh, famously, his hands and feet were nailed to the wood of the cross. Now, sometimes people will say, well, that's just a legend. But in 1968, they discovered a tomb just outside of Jerusalem, dated to about the time of Jesus, in which they found the bones of a young man who had been crucified. And they know he had been crucified because there was an iron spike right through his heel bone. Here's a picture of it. So 
During crucifixion, not only was Jesus brutally beaten beyond recognition, not only was he lashed so badly that there were chunks of flesh taken out of his body, but his hands and feet were nailed to the cross in excruciating pain. Friends, Jesus had wounds, excruciating wounds. In fact, Roman crucifixion was designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain for the maximum amount of time. Now, here's what this means for us. Um, Jesus is what the Bible calls a mediator. A mediator is someone who's so identified with the people that he can represent us to God. So if Jesus is a mediator, that means that on the cross, Jesus is so identified with us that in many ways, he becomes us on the cross. So that all of our human condition, all of our human experience is is loaded onto Jesus on the cross as it were. He becomes us on the cross. So to look at Jesus on the cross is to look at ourselves. And if Jesus has wounds, that means we have wounds. And it doesn't take you very long. You don't have to think about this very long or or very hard to realize that in this wound, uh, in this world, we all have wounds. We all take hits. We all have experienced hurts and grief and loss and trauma in this world. And on top of that, our wounds create false stories and false beliefs in our lives. Wounds tell us lies. Lies like um, we deserve what happened to us or that what happened is because we're bad or worthless or that there is no truly safe place in this world. Our wounds create false stories in our lives. And here's the thing, most of the time we're not even aware of them. You know, modern neuroscience is increasingly showing us more and more that trauma is like literally hardwired into our nervous systems, that trauma lives in the body and it shapes our lives most often without, with us, without us even being aware of what's happening to us. Now, and one of the really helpful things uh, over the last several years is that we're living in a society that is increasingly aware of the reality of trauma and the importance of mental health. But you know the Bible has been telling us about all of this for thousands of years. So if you go back to Genesis 1 through 3, when God creates the world, everything is, is beautiful and pure and perfect. But if you've read the story, what happens um, before the first humans sin, they're sinned against. The serpent comes and lies to them, gaslights them, deceives them, and wounds them. And we've been carrying those wounds ever since. Friends, Jesus' wounds show us our own wounds, and our wound needs healing. One of the really great things is that we live in what we could call a therapeutic culture. A therapeutic culture is a culture that takes wounds and grief, and loss, and trauma, and mental health seriously, and seeks to provide care for those things. The danger, however, is to focus only on our wounds. The the mistake of an exclusively therapeutic worldview is that it reduces us just to our wounds. So, for instance, I was watching a documentary last week about Sue Klebold. She's the mother of Dylan Klebold, who was um, one of the shooters at Columbine back in 1999, which sadly is all too relevant again for us this past week. But in that movie, a big chunk of that documentary is about the, um, the huge differences that uh, mental health interventions can make uh, in the mental health of people, especially children. So in the movie, they had various experts who said, look, 
we can um, name a problem. We can prevent depression or aggressive behavior or anxiety. Human beings have been struggling with these issues for thousands of years. But if we all band together and focus on these things, then we can have a massively different society. And as I was listening to that, I had two big thoughts. The first thought was, we should do everything in our power to practice these kinds of interventions because it could really change a lot of people's lives. My second thought was, this sounds a little utopian. As if we human beings have the power to change the world and to change our lives. Like if we could just teach every five-year-old to practice mindfulness, then we would fix the world. Listen, if, if human beings, if our main and only problem is, is our wounds, then maybe that's the case. But to reduce humanity to only our wounds, is, it's too reductionistic. The cross helps us here because the cross shows us that we are not only our wounds. We are that, but we are so much more. And that leads to our second point. The cross shows us the wound, but also it shows us the mask. One of the, um, all of the Gospels tell us that um, when he was on the cross, Jesus, um, well, if you look at a painting, usually it has Jesus in a loincloth. You know, but in reality, he was probably stripped naked because that's what Roman crucifixion did. You were crucified naked. So in our passage, it says that the guards were casting lots for Jesus' clothes because Jesus wasn't wearing them. Roman crucifixion not only was designed to inflict maximum pain, it was also designed to inflict maximum shame. Crucifixion is inherently shameful. And there is nothing that symbolizes shame more than nakedness more than being stripped and exposed and humiliated against your will. And one of the most powerful images for that is nakedness. Now again, this is an image that goes back to the Garden of Eden. If, um, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, at the very end of Genesis 2, it says that the first human beings were naked and not ashamed. But then when they rebel against God and they eat from the tree God told them not to eat, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But then right after that, God shows up and he starts calling out for them and Adam tells God, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I don't know if you realize how profound this is. The Bible says that fear and shame, and hiding all go together. When we are ashamed of something, we don't talk about it. Instead, what do we do? We cover ourselves with fig leaves. Our fig leaves might be things like our accomplishments, or performance, or being a good person. It could be things like money, clothes, and possessions. It could be your brand, or your persona, or your platform on social media. It could be membership in a tribe, whether a political tribe, religious tribe, social tribe, or a tribe based on some other identity factor. But all of that stuff is like a mask. We go out into this world wearing masks. Masks that, um, that hide the, the shame that we carry underneath, but also masks that we use to, to win the affirmation of people out in the world because deep down we're so afraid that if people saw who we really are, they couldn't possibly love us. 
We use our masks to hide who we are and to win affirmation from people. So, for instance, there was an essay in the New York Times a few years ago by a writer named Ruth Whitman, and she's talking about the gig economy and all of the self-promotion and self-marketing that goes along with that. But, she says, it's not really about the money. Listen to how she puts it. She says, almost everyone I know has some kind of hustle or side project. Share my blog, buy my book, follow me on Instagram, visit my Etsy shop, donate to my Kickstarter. It's as though we are all working in Walmart on an endless Black Friday of the soul. The sad truth is that many of us would probably make more money stacking shelves than selling our thing. The real prize is deeper, more existential. What this is really about, for many of us, is a roaring black hole of psychological need. We shackle our self-worth to the success of these projects. We grub and scrabble and claw at one another, chasing these tiny pellets of self-esteem. Friends, we all wear masks in this world to get the love that we need. That's what we do. And on the cross, the mask is stripped away. When Jesus was stripped naked, he's showing us who we really are. Another powerful way of thinking about this is to say that we all um, have a false self that we project to the world. And, and that our true self is hidden underneath, buried in shame. That we all have this false self we project to the world. And so, remember what we've seen, you know, um, our wound needs healing, but our shame needs affirmation. That is very true. It, it's not just that we have a wound and we need healing, it's that we have shame and we need affirmation. That there's something that happens that we end up projecting this false self to the world around us. But here's the thing, remember what we just saw, to focus only on our wound is too reductionistic. So if the mistake of a exclusively therapeutic worldview is to reduce everything about humanity to our wound, the mistake of much modern spirituality is to reduce everything to our mask and the false self that we project to the world. So if you, listen, there is a, an explosion of all kinds of spiritual paths out in the world today. But if you look and listen to many of them, there's a, a narrative thread that is in many of these various spiritual paths today. It's a narrative that says, look, um, these primitive beliefs that say that we're separated from God because of sin. That's a subjective illusion. And what we really need is if we were to just practice meditation or spiritual disciplines enough, what would happen is our consciousness would evolve, our false self would dissolve, and we would just suddenly see that, that we're really one with God. Now listen, modern spiritual paths are right and good to call out the oppressive, harmful tendencies of much traditional religion, but they are deeply mistaken to reduce the human condition to just one thing, that we suffer from the illusion of the false self and that we need to uh, meditate or evolve our consciousness enough so that we can um, have our true self united with God. For just as we are more than just our wounds in this world, so also we are more than just our masks and our false selves in this world. Both of those things are true. They're just not the whole picture. And that leads to our third point. The cross shows us the wound. The cross shows us the mask. But next, the cross shows us the wraith. And here's what I mean by this. Um, all of the Gospels tell us that Jesus wore a crown of thorns. So in this passage, it says... And they, that's the guards, clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, 
they put it on him. Now, at the most basic level, the Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus, but they're also pouring out the wrath of the empire on him. Because anybody who um, asserts themselves as a rival king is, um, is challenging the supremacy of Lord Caesar in the Roman Empire, and they deserve to have wrath poured out on them. So when Jesus is, is um, uh, they say, claiming to be a king, they're pouring out wrath on him. In fact, not only was Roman crucifixion designed to inflict maximum pain, not only was it designed to inflict maximum shame, it was also designed to inflict maximum wrath on anyone who defies the empire. So if the cross is a mirror that shows us about ourselves, what does this twisted crown show us about ourselves? Well, think about this again. This goes back to Genesis 1 through 3. In the Garden of Eden, um, when the first human beings rebelled against God, what was going on? You know, Genesis shows us that human beings were created to be God's representatives in this world, to serve God as his representatives in this world. We could say it like this, that human beings were created to be sub-kings and sub-queens of God. Uh, that means on the one hand, uh, we're created with this royal dignity because we're created in the image of God to be God's representatives. But on the other hand, we are not the rulers of creation. God is. And we were put here to serve God as his royal representatives. The problem is in the garden, the first human beings decided they didn't want to serve God. They wanted to be God. That was the lie of the serpent. He said, you will be like God. So when the first humans grabbed the fruit of the tree, they were making a power grab for the throne of God. They were not content just to, to serve God. They wanted to be God. They were not content just to be sub-kings and queens. They and we want to be rival kings and queens. That's what happens to us. So what happens is, is we crown ourselves, but in twisting a crown for ourselves, we're twisting our souls. Remember, the soldiers twisted a crown for Jesus. Uh, you know what a wreath is? A wreath is, is basically a, a branch that's been twisted into the shape of something. And th that word wreath comes from the old English word writhe, which means to twist. But there's another word that comes from that, and it's the word wraith. Now, that is not a word that we use very often, but it basically means a ghost. So if a wreath is a twisted branch, a wraith is a twisted soul. In, in twisting a crown for ourselves, we twisted our souls. We have turned ourselves into a, a ghost compared to what we were meant to be. So, for instance, you remember the Nazgul from Lord of the Rings? I don't know if you can see. They're very ethereal right here. The Nazgul were nine human kings whose um, lust for power twisted them and brought them into bondage under the one ring of all power. So, in the book, Tolkien calls them ring wraiths because their lust for power twisted them into ghosts it twisted them into the living dead in the same way we have twisted ourselves into wraiths into ghosts whenever we say i don't want to live the way god tells me to live i want to live the way i want to live whenever we say that and we say it all the time whether you think you do or not Whenever we say that, we're twisting ourselves into raids, rebels, rival, rival kings for God, asserting ourselves against the exalted authority and sovereignty of God. The Bible calls that sin. So even if you believe in God, um, is God in your life as Lord and King? 
Or, and be honest, is he oftentimes in your life simply there to co-sign who you've already decided you want to be and how you've already decided you want to live and what you've already decided you want to do? God is Lord and King, but so often we bring him into our life to co-sign what we already want to do. Now listen, I mean, that's just natural for us because the culture we live in, we're constantly being seduced by the mellifluous siren song of our culture, which is constantly telling us, look, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. You do you. Understand, that is not being your true self. That is simply perpetuating the wraith of the false self. We twist a crown for ourselves, but in twisting crowns for ourselves, we twist our souls. Friends, we need to understand this because if we don't understand this about ourselves, then we will never see the totality of who we really are. And we will never receive the forgiveness that Jesus won for us on the cross. Because remember, our wound requires healing. We, we, we've taken wounds in this world, and our wounds have created um, fear and shame in our lives that leads us to project masks and false selves out into the world. But we've also twisted ourselves into wraiths, and wraiths require wrath because evil requires justice. But on the cross, Jesus received the wrath and the justice we deserve so that we could receive forgiveness. So remember... The problem is that we don't just need forgiveness. We don't just need affirmation. We also need, um, we don't just need healing and we don't just need affirmation. We also need forgiveness. The problem, the mistake, and actually this is a mistake that much modern evangelical Christianity makes, is to reduce humanity only to our need for forgiveness. As if we're only sinners who needed Jesus to take the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven for our sins. That's true. (laughs) Praise God, that is true. But it's still not the whole picture. Our wound needs healing, our shame needs affirmation, and our sin needs forgiveness. That is a much fuller picture of who we are as human beings. But even this is still not the entire picture of everything the cross shows us. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the wound, we've seen the mask, we've just seen the wraith, but lastly, the cross shows us the beloved. Friends, let's go back to what we saw at the beginning. Remember what we said, the cross helps us embrace the remedy God offers by showing us the malady it addresses. So if the cross is a mirror showing us who we really are, what does the cross show us about our true malady as human beings? Well, look at Jesus on the cross. Look at his wounds. Look at his shame. Look at his twisted crown. It's our wounds, our shame, our twisted crown. All of that was loaded onto Jesus because on the cross, Jesus became everything we are. And we need to see the fullness of that in order to understand all that we really are. The challenge is, again, in our culture, the cross has become something sentimental or merely a fashion statement. But we need to see the full horror of the cross. Otherwise, we'll never see the the fullness of who we really are as human beings. Challenges, it's just difficult for us to do this. But there are ways that we can do this to to really grasp the horror of the cross. We mentioned one at the beginning. You know, very oftentimes, people will compare the cross to the electric chair as a modern-day equivalent, which is actually not a bad comparison because 
the electric chair really is a brutal, ghastly, and painful form of execution. The problem is the electric chair doesn't go nearly far enough. Because instead of taking hours or even days to kill someone, the, uh, an electric chair does it pretty quickly. And also, instead of um, exposing someone in shame and shaming them and degrading them, they put a hood over someone's head to protect their dignity. And instead of being a public exhibition for all to see, the electric chair is intended only for a private audience. The electric chair only goes so far. A much better modern-day equivalent of crucifixion would be a lynching. In fact, I want to read some lyrics for you from a song about a lynching. And so I need to warn you that this is brutal and horrifying what I'm about to recite to you. But that's the point. The song is called Strange Fruit. It was written by uh, a Jewish school teacher named Abel Meerpool back in 1937 and made eternally famous by the great jazz singer Billie Holiday in 1939. While I read this, I want to show you a picture of a painting by an artist named Grunewald. Uh, Many paintings of Jesus show him very serene and peaceful on the cross. Not this one. This one shows the horror of the cross. It shows you, if, if you go home and look it up online, you can see there are pieces of bone and metal embedded in his flesh. There are chunks of, of bleeding flesh throughout his body. His hands and his feet are writhing in pain. And you can see the agony of everything that he's going through. So as I read this song, I want to invite you either to meditate on this picture, or if you prefer, maybe just simply close your eyes. But listen to the words of this song. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Think about that. Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck. For the sun to rot, for the tree to drop, here is a strange and bitter crop. Friends, that is a horrifying picture, not only of what this country has done to black bodies. It's a horrifying picture of what we did to Jesus on the cross because it's a picture of what we do to ourselves. On the cross, Jesus became everything we are. Because remember, Jesus is a mediator. Jesus, that means that Jesus identified so much with us in our wounds, our shame, and our sin that he can represent us to God. So for instance, at the very beginning of his ministry, um, Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, it was his way of identifying with us in our wounds and our shame and our sin and representing all of that to God. But here's the question, who is Jesus? When he was baptized, it also says that the heavens were opened and a voice came from heaven, the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. God told Jesus, you are my beloved son. Jesus is beloved. He is the beloved. That's who Jesus is. 
But here's the really amazing thing. Not only is a mediator someone who's so identified with us that he can represent us to God, a mediator is someone who's so identified with God that he can represent God to us. Friends, here's what this means. On the cross, Jesus became everything we are so we could become everything he is. On the cross, Jesus took all of our wounds, our shame, our sin, so that we could receive the belovedness that he has in God. Jesus became everything that we are so we could become everything that he is. Everything that he is, beloved. You know, every time Jesus opened his mouth to God in prayer, it was always, Father, Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. There was never a moment in Jesus' life when he wasn't constantly bathing in the belovedness that he had in God as his Father. Never a moment except on the cross. Because on the cross, when Jesus cried out, it wasn't my Father, my Father. It was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became everything we are so that we could become everything he is. He took all of our wounds, shame, and sin so that we could receive his belovedness. Dear friends, the thing you need more than anything else in this world is to experience the belovedness that's available to you in Jesus because we don't just need healing. We don't just need affirmation. And we don't even just need forgiveness. We need the healing, affirming, forgiving, transforming love of God in our life. But the only way we get that is by looking full on at the horror of the cross. That's hard for us to do, but I have one and only one appeal to you today. Stop and behold. Stop every day and behold the cross. Don't pass by the horror of the cross. In our culture, that's really hard to do because the more we... Um, sentimentalize the cross, the more we commercialize the cross, the more we trivialize the cross. And therefore, the more we insulate ourselves from the transforming love of God that's available to us on the cross. But I want to encourage you today, stop and behold the fullness of everything that Jesus did for us on the cross. Don't let the hurry and the distraction of this world keep you from stopping and beholding everything he is. You know, centuries before the cross, the prophet Jeremiah called people to stop and behold the suffering of Israel right after the destruction of Jerusalem. But he spoke better than he knew because when he wrote those words, he was actually pointing forward to the ultimate sorrow and suffering of Jesus on the cross. He says, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on me on the day of his fierce anger. Friends, stop and behold the suffering sorrows of Jesus on the cross. If Jesus only suffered little, then he has only loved you little. But if Jesus has suffered much, and he has, then it's because he loves you much. Never was sorrow like his sorrow, because never was there a love like his love. Behold his sorrow, regard his sorrow, so that you can experience the transformation of his love. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, really, we need to take off our shoes and bow down at the horrifying awfulness 
of what you're showing us on the cross, but also to bow down in wonder and amazement at the love that you've poured out for us on the cross. Lord, please help us to see the magnitude of the cross. Let the magnitude of your love for us there show us the magnitude of our sin, our wounds, our shame. And Father, I pray that you would, um, as we stop and behold, that you would let the magnitude of all of that transform us in your love and help us to know that before anything else, we are beloved, and that after all is said and done, we are beloved, that the cross didn't change your mind about us. The cross confirmed your mind, your heart, and your passion for us, and that your wrath on Jesus is an expression of your love for us. I pray that you would help us to stop and behold this morning, that every day of our lives would be another opportunity, another chance for us to stop and behold the wonders of your love for us in the cross of Christ. And that we would go forth into this world, Lord, that we would be vessels of your love. That as the cross is a window into who you are and a mirror to who we are, that we would go forth as a window and a mirror to the rest of the world. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.